Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Nick Miles, and in the early hours of Saturday, the 21st of August, these are our main stories. President Biden has insisted that there's an order and a logic to what America has overseen in Afghanistan. For 20 years, Afghanistan has been a joint effort with our NATO allies. We went in together and we're leaving together. And now we're working together to bring our people and our Afghan partners to safety. We'll hear an assessment of his speech and we'll also hear about the ongoing fears of Afghans who helped Western forces. Also, what happened when Russian leader Vladimir Putin met German Chancellor Angela Merkel for what's been dubbed their farewell summit. Also in this podcast, relief supplies have begun to arrive in earthquake-ravaged Haiti. So are the people there feeling more hopeful? Also, this woman was clearly in a pretty terrible state when they found her. Uh, she reckons that she'd been at sea for, for six days. How one woman survived out of 53 African migrants who boarded a flimsy boat headed for the Canary Islands. And why rainfall on a mountain in Greenland could be bad news for all of us. As we record this podcast, it's been another day of chaos at Kabul's airport as thousands of Afghans have desperately tried to board flights out of the country following the Taliban takeover there. The militants' promise to respect human rights is looking increasingly hollow. In a moment, we'll hear reports of ethnically-based massacres that took place last month. But first, let's look at the fate of former government officials and people who helped the NATO forces before they left the country. At the Taliban press conference several days ago, they were promised an amnesty, but more accounts have emerged of door-to-door searches being carried out for them. This former translator told the BBC how he had to flee in the middle of the night. we just been sleeping at uh, 3 o'clock and suddenly one of our, our female neighbours, she knocked the door and she said that uh, they were searching for weapons, documents and vehicle for, of government. And the documents relates about the NATO or government stuff. If they find find it, they're going to take with themselves. So then I just scared and I put on my clothes and I just run off from my home and jump from the backside of the wall. Well, we don't know where he is now, but he may well be trying to join the large crowd still gathered at Kabul airport, trying to get out on a flight. Uh, many foreign nationals and eligible Afghans are trapped and they're unable to get into the terminal building. A German civilian has been shot and injured in the chaos. Our correspondent Sukunda Kamani is in Kabul and has sent this report. I was there at the airport yesterday afternoon. The situation was a little calmer than it has been in previous days, but still pretty chaotic. You've still got thousands and thousands of people there who don't have any visa, who don't have any realistic prospect of being evacuated, but who are so desperate, really, that they've turned up at the airport, hoping that somehow they'll be able to find their way out of the country. That crowd at times surging forward, the Taliban firing into the air at times, hitting them with whips at times. And that's also obviously causing big problems for those people who do have valid uh, travel documents. Understand that those foreign nationals are finding it somewhat easier to get into the airport. But for those Afghans who are being relocated because they have links with the international presence here, 
because they're particularly vulnerable for, for one reason or another. They've been finding it more difficult. I've been speaking to one former British uh, interpreter, an Afghan who worked with British forces. He's waiting to find out uh, when he'll be able to board a flight. But he said that some of his friends had missed their flight because of the chaotic situation outside the airport. I've had some reports of the Taliban at times making things a bit difficult or making uh, access to the airport difficult, even for those Afghans uh, who had the right travel documents. When we were there yesterday, it seemed pretty clear that the Taliban were losing patience with these scenes being broadcast internationally of so many Afghans wanting to leave the country. Of course, Western officials and anyone else who's trying to negotiate access for Afghans to the airport have to go through the Taliban. They have to talk to the Taliban because the Taliban are in control of, of this city. Sekunder Kamani reporting from Kabul. Well, a few hours before we came into the studio, President Biden made a televised speech from the White House and he referred to the scenes of panic and desperation unfolding at Kabul's airport. He expressed empathy with the pain of people in the Afghan capital. The past week has been heartbreaking. We've seen gut-wrenching images of panicked people acting out of sheer desperation. They're frightened, they're sad, uncertain what happens next. I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us can see these pictures and not feel that pain on a human level. Now we have a mission, a mission to complete in Afghanistan. This is our focus now. And when this is finished, we will complete our military withdrawal and finally bring to an end 20 years of American military action in Afghanistan. Mr Biden insisted that US forces are maintaining security as evacuation efforts continue in Afghanistan. We made clear to the Taliban that any attack, any attack on our forces or disruption of our operations at the airport will be met with swift and forceful response. We're also keeping a close watch on any potential terrorist threat at or around the airport, including from the ISIS affiliates in Afghanistan who were released from prison when the prisons were emptied. And the president added that the events of the past week were clear evidence of American global leadership. This is where we should be. This is about America leading the world. And all our allies have agreed with that. And by the way, before I made this decision, I was at the G7 and I told them all, every one of them knew and agreed with the decision I made to jointly end our involvement in Afghanistan. This is where we should be. This is about America leading the world. Well, Ryan Crocker is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former US ambassador to Afghanistan. Paul Henley asked him, is that a sentiment with which he would agree? Well, I think the world might have a commentary on that. I understand that uh, despite what the president just said, that our NATO allies were su- very surprised by our action, none too happy, and have been scrambling to try to catch up and get their own folks out. Is this actually about America no longer leading the world? You know, uh, sadly, I think that is what we are seeing. And it is a bitter disappointment, I think, to to all of us who Uh, saw the value that our leadership over the years had brought. Uh, If this is leadership, uh, we're all in trouble. There were a few other curious phrases in the speech. I'm I'm sure you probably saw all of it. He said of his his US allies, we went in together, we're leaving together. Well, that will raise eyebrows in Paris, London and Berlin, won't it? I would certainly think it would. I mean, 
in a, in a very real sense, he's just out-Trumped Trump, uh, who surprised our NATO allies when uh, he said he was uh, cutting our force uh, in half down to 2,500. And uh, now, of course, we have President Biden uh, surprising our uh, NATO allies by saying we're coming out all the way in spite of the chaos that that uh, announcement brought. What should he be doing? Getting back in? Well, look, uh, you cannot you cannot rewind this film. I, I think that's very clear. But what he uh, still, I think, should be doing is, you know, actually talking to his allies uh, in NATO. I mean, everybody is scrambling now, but it is also a time to figure out what we do next. And how are we going to uh, deal with the fait accompli of a, a Taliban takeover of the country? Uh, as riveted as we all are, and rightly, on the horrific plight of those who supported us as Afghanistan now going through, uh, there is a broader issue out there that is going to require all of us to do some serious thinking. And uh, I would hope very much that uh, uh, the president will do just that, to reach out. In the short term, though, he said he had a mission to complete, and that was to get people who wanted to get out of Kabul out. That might mean extending this so-called deadline at the end of this month, mightn't it? I mean, that that's becoming obvious. Well, it's, uh, again, uh, one of so many areas where it is not clear to me what the president intends. Uh, is he saying that uh, uh, we will be there until we have gotten out uh, all of those who have put their lives at risk because they served us? I mean, that's uh, probably another 60,000 people. Uh, when you you crank in family members? Or is he saying, oh, just the Americans? Uh, All of you uh, visa applicants uh, that we said we'd save, we're not going to do it. We got to go. Goodbye and good luck. Uh, I hope very much it's the former. But of course, if it is, clearly there's going to have to be more time than um, by the end of this month. Ryan Crocker of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, speaking to Paul Henley. There's growing concern in Afghanistan about religious and media freedoms under the new Taliban regime. The human rights group Amnesty International has accused the Taliban of killing nine men last month in Ghazni, all from the Hazara minority. Eyewitnesses said three were tortured. Brian Kastner is one of the authors of the Amnesty report. As the Taliban would take over rural districts or smaller cities and then the provincial capitals, they would often cut cell phone service in parts of these areas. So it's very difficult to know what's happening. But we managed to speak to eyewitnesses, people who buried the victims, and are able to be sure that in just this one tiny little hamlet, 30 houses, 40 men total, out of those 40 men, nine ended up dead through torture and execution in the beginning of July. Our South Asia editor, Jill McGivering, gave me more details about this incident. Some of the men were shot dead. It sounds like execution-style shooting, some with their hands tied behind their back. Eyewitnesses suggested others were tortured before they were killed. It doesn't sound as though, from what I have read, there is evidence that they, the fighters specified why they were attacking them. Sometimes you, the, the people will be told it's because you're Hazara, it's because you're Shia, it's because you're heretics, which is how the Taliban would see them. It doesn't sound as though there was that sort of oral evidence. But clearly this is a group that is persecuted in Afghanistan and now they are extremely frightened of the implications and of, of what's to come. Yeah, and it is a, a big ethnic group as well. So that I suppose there is scope uh, for this to, to happen in other parts of the country as well, and d- until the Taliban perhaps gains total control over all areas. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, they've been the target of attack for decades. In recent years, the Taliban has been trying to show that it was not engaged in attacking civilians in the same way. Of course, there have been civilian deaths, but they always say that they're focusing on um, attacking foreign forces and attacking uh, Afghan forces. But certainly in the past, um, you know, previously when the Taliban was in government, absolutely they um, executed people who were Hazara, including quite famously Abdul Ali Mazari, the Hazara leader, uh, that they executed in the 1990s. And just a couple of days ago, fighters pulled down the statue that was put up to him. Uh, he was sort of rehabilitated nationally um, by the Afghan government. Certainly, that too has sent shockwaves that this is supposed to be a new style of Taliban, and yet they've gone right in and attacked this statue to their leader. Jill, uh, Afghanistan is a, a complex web of different ethnicities. I suppose there's always the scope for other ethnic groups to be targeted by the Taliban, largely made up of Pashtuns, like the Tajiks and, uh, and other groups as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Tajik, the second largest group, they tend to be involved very often in the in the army, so that makes them a target perhaps in that sense. There are smaller communities, Uzbeks, Turkmen's, Baluch and so on. Those are the ethnic groups, but there's also, of course, the religious element. I mean, basically, the really hardline Taliban philosophy was to attack anyone who is different. Jill McGivering, our South Asia editor. Vladimir Putin has demanded that countries cease interfering in Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul. And he said that the West must stop imposing foreign values from abroad. During his farewell summit with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, the Russian leader said the US-led campaign in Afghanistan could not be called a success. Here's our Moscow correspondent Steve Rosenberg. In his first comments since the Taliban took Kabul, Vladimir Putin took aim at the West for its failure in Afghanistan. The Kremlin leader said the irresponsible policy of imposing from the outside someone else's values must end, along with the desire to build democracy according to other people's templates. What was important now, he added, was ensuring stability in Afghanistan and preventing terrorists from getting into neighbouring countries. Afghanistan was high on the agenda of the talks with Angela Merkel, but human rights featured too. Germany's Chancellor called for the release of President Putin's most vocal critic, Alexei Navalny. His imprisonment, she said, was unacceptable. This is probably Angela Merkel's last visit to Moscow as Chancellor. Although she speaks fluent Russian and he speaks German, they never really found a common language. In the 16 years they've been dealing with each other, their relationship has been a difficult one. On one famous occasion, the Russian president brought along his pet Labrador to a meeting with Mrs Merkel, who was afraid of dogs. But today, one of Russia's most popular newspapers had this compliment for the Chancellor. Merkel and Putin, it said, are well matched as partners and rivals. Steve Rosenberg, our Moscow correspondent. And still to come in this edition of our podcast. From the last year, Cuba every month is changing, you know. We have seen things that we couldn't imagine a few years ago. Are the recent mass protests in Cuba a sign of fundamental change in the communist state? Aid supplies are now arriving in Haiti, a week after a powerful earthquake killed nearly 2,500 people and flattened tens of thousands of buildings. There's been mounting anger in Haiti over the slow delivery of relief to areas affected by Saturday's quake and damage to roads is hampering the distribution of aid. 
Our correspondent James Clayton has travelled to a coastal town in the southwest of Haiti. Aid is slowly trickling into the southern peninsula area of Lekai in Haiti. But on the road to the coastal town of Les Anglais, there's not much evidence of assistance. During the two-hour journey through earthquake-shattered villages, we saw just one charity, run by a local church, giving out help. At the main airport in and out of this region, there was also little evidence of large amounts of aid being transported in. Les Anglais is a pretty coastal town. Its prize and joy is the local church. Now, it's barely standing. There was a mass christening here just before the earthquake struck, and the church had been filling up. A witness, Bayote, tells us that the ground shook so violently that the church bell rang out. The entire front of the church collapsed as people tried to flee. The locals tell us that 22 people died, including many children. And yet many of the survivors have had only basic care. Nearly a week after the earthquake, large numbers are still sleeping outside their homes, some with no cover. And many now wonder not whether, but if help will ever arrive. James Clayton in southwestern Haiti. Every year, hundreds of migrants die while making the perilous sea crossing from the north and west of Africa to the Canary Islands. In the latest tragedy, a woman found clinging on a boat some 250 kilometres south of the islands is now being treated for severe dehydration. She is the only survivor of a dinghy that was carrying dozens of people. Our Europe regional editor, Mike Sanders, has been following the story and he told me more. This woman was clearly in a pretty terrible state when they found her. Uh, She reckons that she'd been at sea for, for six days and there were two corpses alongside her in this boat, which is just a Zodiac, one of these sort of semi-rigid inflatables that are really only suitable for uh, for coastal use. And initially she told the rescuers that uh, 40 people had been aboard the, the boat. But when she started to recover and got her senses back a bit, she actually increased the number to 53. So, so we think that 52 people drowned in this single incident. And with those kind of inappropriate boats in choppy waters, it's it's not surprising this isn't the first um, boat to sink this week, is it, really? Yeah, and of course, Nick, it's not just the sinking that's the problem. Uh, These boats, when when they're set out, they're given sort of a bit of food and a bit of water and some fuel, but they, they, they tend to run out after about three days. So you often get people just dying of starvation, thirst and exposure. Uh, And uh, just uh, this week we had one where 47 people died after two weeks adrift and they'd left, you know, Morocco on August the 2nd. And they actually washed up in Mauritania, which is more than a thousand kilometers off course. And there were seven survivors in that incident. And also the Spanish uh, police have arrested a, a 43-year-old Moroccan man this week on, on suspicion of of being the uh, the co-owner of a boat in which another 14 people died after 10 days at sea. You know, 10 of them again died because they'd been drinking seawater and fell ill and the bodies were, uh, were pushed overboard. And when they finally got rescued by a, a freighter, uh, another four people were drowned in the attempt actually to get them on board this rescue vessel in choppy seas. Mike Sanders, our Europe regional editor. 
Hundreds of people in Cuba remain behind bars for their role in the anti-government demonstrations that swept the island last month. Their families and human rights groups say that they're the victims of summary justice by the authorities following what was an unprecedented display of defiance against the ruling Communist Party. President Biden calls Cuba a failed state, while the Cuban government blames the protests on the six-decade-long US economic embargo. From Havana, Will Grant reports. In the small hours of the morning, well before dawn, the queue begins to form outside a state-run food store in Havana. Throughout the island's economic crisis, Cubans have dealt with the dire food shortages with both stoicism and indignation, albeit careful that their complaints among themselves don't escalate to open calls for the system to change. At least, that is, until the 11th of July. Exhausted and furious at the crisis, thousands took to the streets across the island. Beyond the lack of food, they also protested against the urgent lack of medicines, blackouts, inflation and the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. But all the demonstrations shared one single chant. They called for liberty, for freedom after 63 years of unbroken one-party communist rule. It was a moment like no other in modern Cuba. I always say that the biggest capital of the Cuban government is fear over us. Daniel Triana took part in one of the protests and was detained for 24 hours. He was fortunate. Around 800 of those arrested are still being held and the families of many of them say they received summary trials and arbitrary sentences, often without a defence lawyer present. The government insists the detainees are being processed according to the law, but Daniel says something fundamental in terms of the fear of authority has shifted in Cuba. From the last year, Cuba every month is changing, you know. We have seen things that we couldn't imagine a few years ago. People are awakening in Cuba, and that awakening is thanks most of all to the internet. It's interesting to return to the site of the protest several weeks later, in front of the resplendent Capitolio building, the seat of legislative power in Cuba for many decades. There's a tight security cordon around the area, police on every corner, and patrol cars circling me as I speak. The leadership denies it is making scapegoats of those who attended the protests. Gerardo Hernández is a member of the Council of State in Cuba, and lays the blame for the unrest squarely at the feet of the decades-long U.S. economic embargo. I can tell you, right now, you go to Internet and you see even U.S. Congresses calling the Cuban people to go to the street, promising things, trying to subvert the order, trying to affect our peace. We are used to live in peace here, with our problems, with our necessities, but in peace. The United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba. Rather than lift the embargo, however... The Biden administration has introduced new sanctions in the wake of the 11th of July, including against the Black Berets and the entire Cuban police force. Critics say the sanctions do little to harm the island's leadership and only exacerbate the suffering of most Cubans. But the US Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemispheric Affairs, Emily Mendrala, insists the Cuban people and not Washington are leading the calls for change. This is the moment for the Cuban people. This was the Cuban people themselves making demands of their government 
that was driven by, in large part, exhaustion with the government's inability to meet their needs. Besides the word liberty, the protesters on that unprecedented day also chanted Patria y Vida, meaning fatherland and life, the title of an anti-government rap song that has become an anthem for those who demand change in Cuba. A play on Fidel Castro's notorious line, fatherland or death, the reality is the Cuban government has struggled for some time to inspire young people with the same overused slogans of the past. And the post-Castro leaders know that if they fail to solve some of the struggles of daily life in Cuba soon, the chances are they'll see people back on the streets again before too long. Will Grant reporting from Cuba. The subscription website OnlyFans allows users to post sexually explicit content and charges people to view it. But the site has said that it will soon ban such material after pressure from its banks. Uh, The business model means that popular stars on the site have made a lot of money through subscriptions as well as charging larger fees for pay-per-view and specially commissioned work. Well, Rob Young asked our technology reporter Chris Fox about the thinking behind OnlyFans' decision to ban explicit material. OnlyFans is a sort of social media network. Instead of seeing everything for free, you have to pay to see what people post. Sometimes there are different tiers, so you can pay for just the photos or maybe pay twice as much to see photos and videos. And because of that format, it's become very popular with the pornography industry, with sex workers who can sell content. You can also pay an extra fee for specific images or videos. So for those reasons, it's become very popular with adult entertainment, with pornography. And so to strip that away from the website is a pretty huge deal. Why have they decided to do this then? Well, they've said it's down to pressure from their payment providers. There are laws in the United States, for example, which are cracking down on online sex trafficking. And as a result of those laws which were introduced in the Trump administration, there is real anxiety, I think, among payment providers to support websites that offer adult material because there's always a risk that any user-generated websites where you can upload your own pornography, there's a risk that that could be underage pornography or there's a risk that people could be involved in sex trafficking. So for those reasons, the payment providers are kind of cutting off websites that offer these kind of services. Is it possible to assess what kind of future OnlyFans will have if it strips out what presumably was a pretty significant part of his revenue? Well, we've seen something like this happen before with the microblogging website Tumblr. They banned adult material and as a result, all the people that made that kind of content went elsewhere and so did a large chunk of people who used the site for other things because it changed the whole tone of the website. I think OnlyFans will definitely experience that kind of backlash too. And there are other websites waiting in the wings. There's one called Just For Fans that is doing a very similar thing and has pledged not to remove adult material. Technology reporter Chris Fox speaking to Rob Young. There is no way of recording rainfall at the highest monitoring station on Greenland's ice sheet. When it was set up in 1989, nobody thought they'd ever need one. Well, they do now. 
because for the first time, rain has fallen on the 3,000-metre-high summit. It's another graphic reminder of global warming, as I've been hearing from Twyla Moon in the United States at the National Snow and Ice Data Centre. What we've observed is an extreme melt event at the summit station in Greenland, which is roughly three kilometers above sea level. And we've actually seen for the first time rain at the summit station. Because we're on an ice sheet, we can actually look to the ice itself to tell us about um, whether we've seen events like this before. As best we can tell, there have, before this last decade, only been six instances of observing melt at Summit Station in the last 2,000 years. Twyla, tell us why this is happening now. Why are the temperatures so high this year? Well, it's happening certainly as a result of human-caused climate change in part, which is driving warmer air temperatures and also changing some of the climatic patterns we see. And also we had a significant melt event in late July. In both instances, we had warm air and warm and wet air from the south that was pushed up into the interior of the ice sheet, causing these extremely unusual and uh, really devastating melt events. And one of the problems I, I, I hear is that this causes some kind of feedback loop. So, so if there's meltwater on the surface, it changes the, the colour of the surface and it absorbs more heat. To what extent is that happening? Yes, when we have melt on a snow surface, it actually changes and alters the grains of the snow. And unfortunately, the way that snow changes, it is easier for it to take up solar energy, solar radiation, heat, and produce more melt. So from what you've been saying, the fact that there's been rain at this high altitude is very significant, but it's not really the the, the be-all and end-all. It's the melting, uh, constant melting at these high levels that, that is the real issue. Yes, we often see a tension with these kind of single extreme events occur, but it's really the longer multi-decadal trend of ice loss in Greenland that is so incredibly concerning. And of course, this loss is not just affecting local ecosystems, fisheries, the people who live in Greenland, but counterintuitively, as we lose ice from Greenland, it actually produces the biggest impacts for sea level rise at places far away where we're getting coastal erosion, problems with infrastructure, inundation of water into sewer systems, other problems with economies, shipping, and and things that are concerned to, to livelihoods around the world. Twyla Moon from the National Snow and Ice Data Centre. And that's all from us for now, but there will be a new edition of the Global News Podcast later on. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics that we've covered in it, send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. This edition was mixed by Stuart Hollingdrake, produced by Rahul Sarnik, and the editor is Karen Martin. I'm Nick Miles, and until next time, goodbye. Real-life officers have been charged with abusing their badges, of being corrupt to the core. Who can you trust when cops become robbers? If you're a drug dealer and you have two prior drug convictions and the police come and take your money and rob you, is anyone going to believe you? While some in the justice system know that something's rotten in Baltimore. And you hear the same story time after time. You know what? Where the smoke is eventually is going to be fire. That's not enough to deter rogue cops from running amok. It broke my jaw. It left me on the ground for dead. Bad things happen to people that see things. Bad Cops, from the BBC World Service.
We are no longer looking at a couple guys that are associates of a drug conspiracy. We have a whole other set of conduct that's going on. Search for Bad Cops wherever you get your podcasts.